The Energy Gang is brought to you by Huawei Technologies. From devices to telecom infrastructure to cloud computing and convergence solutions, Huawei is rethinking every link in the IT chain to deliver a better future faster. Huawei is now offering its Fusion Solar PV solution, a unique approach to integrating, optimizing, and digitizing solar power plants. See how to improve your solar project at Huawei.com. That's H-U-A-W-E-I.com. For the week of November 9th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Welcome all. In this show, we're going to look at some important trends in building efficiency. There's been a lot of movement around the country in the last couple of years on this front, particularly when it comes to energy disclosure laws, and we'll ask what it all adds up to for our building stock. Then, Keystone XL. After a seven-year battle over the tar sands pipeline, President Obama decided to kill it. We'll recap the controversy, and we'll finish up with a discussion about Solar City. The company has been rocked by the stock market. It is the latest company to get hit hard. We'll ask why. In Washington, D.C., I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media. Catherine Hamilton is with 38 North Solutions in D.C. How are you? Great. This is the first week in a long string that I have not had to travel, so I'm very happy. Jigger Shah is with Generate Capital in New York City. How are you, sir? Traveling much these days or staying home? No, staying home and trying to get the requisite amount of sleep while keeping a child alive. <laughs> Our guest is in Washington, D.C. Cliff Mazurzik is the executive director of the Institute for Market Transformation, which is a nonprofit that focuses on transformative efficiency policy for buildings. Cliff, welcome to the show. Hopefully you're well-rested. You've had sufficient sleep to be on this podcast. Yes, I have. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Great to, great to have you here. Let me ask before we start talking about other buildings around the country, how efficient is the building that you're located in right now? I am in my office, which is in Farragut North in D.C. near the White House, and it's a very efficient building. Actually, it was one of three buildings that were um, profiled in a case study that NRDC wrote about the tower company, the, the landlord for the building, which used is at site the real-time energy monitoring software and service company. Uh, and uh, my building, I believe, had the biggest reduction of the three, a 27% reduction in energy use. It's uh, LEED uh, and Energy Star labeled. Ah, good to hear the efficiency folks are the ones that are actually reducing energy the most. IMT has been really focused on crafting and promoting energy benchmarking laws and disclosure laws for buildings um, in cities around the country. And I believe there are now 13 cities with, with such laws. Can you describe how these actually work? Well, actually, there are now 15 cities and one county and two states that have benchmarking and transparency laws. And the premise of the law is that you can't manage what you don't measure. The market needs information about the building uh, performance, the performance of these buildings, their energy use, and in many cases, their water use, in order to properly value them, to give the building owners an incentive to uh, improve efficiency. And so what the laws do is they require that the owners annually energy star benchmark the building using the free Energy Star tool from the federal government. Uh, and that generates, for many building types, a 1 to 100 score, wh where 
a score of 100 would mean you're in the top 1%. A score of 50 would mean that you're average, and, and 1% was the bottom 1%. Uh, and it normalizes for weather uh, and occupancy. So it tries to be um, an apples-to-apples -apples comparison of each building over time, uh, and the buildings are typically required to benchmark each year, uh, and uh, of buildings against each other. Uh, so it's... Um, these laws typically require public transparency, so you have uh, the market gets information about the performance of all of the large buildings in each of these cities and, and the county and uh, soon the state of California as well. So basically the premise is if we're requ requiring all this other public information to be disclosed and available about buildings, why not energy? What's the counter argument to this? I mean, are there any legitimate arguments for not releasing this data? I think everyone listening to the show and we can all agree that it's important to get this data out there. But I know that some real estate groups have resisted. Are there any good arguments for not releasing this data? Or what are they in general, even if you don't think they're good arguments? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, there are a number of arguments against it. I mean, I think... Um, it, this may not always be explicitly stated, but the number one reason is just people don't like re to be required to do anything. Um, and building owners say, you know, we're, we know what's best for us. Uh, don't make us do anything. Uh, but I would say in response to that, that this is the most light touch of all requirements because it's something that you, we're just providing information to the market. Uh, and if the market doesn't have the information, the market can't value it. You can't manage what you don't measure and you can't value what you don't measure. And it's not enough just for the owners to do it themselves. Their tenants need to know it, the prospective tenants, investors, um, lenders, appraisers need to have comparable sales data. So if you believe in market transformation and the power of a virtuous cycle, it's much more powerful to have the information out there publicly than just um, being uh, done by one owner uh, keeping the information to themselves. Another argument this... you hear sometimes is... Uh, that it's not fair to rate a building based on its total energy use because tenants use a lot of the energy in that building. And that's true that, that tenants do control a lot of energy in the building, but the landlords need to work with their tenants. And, and in order to work well, you really need to set a goal. And a numeric goal like you have a, a benchmark is a very powerful tool, as is things like green leasing. And we do a lot on leases, win-win leases, where the landlord and the tenant come out ahead when the building's more energy efficient. So I think there are many arguments, but uh, generally I think a well-crafted policy that's uh, layered in with other important um, tools like green leasing, like uh, good access to utility data, whole building utility data, benchmark the building. I think that's a very strong package, and it's pretty hard to argue against it. Well, so the argument that I have, um, I'm not against it, but just that that troubles me is that you're right that there's a potential for a virtual cycle, but that's only if someone actually uses the data, right? I mean, it seems to me like there's a movement here that takes credit for other um, macro level themes. Like for instance, the fact that GSA has mandated Energy Star, you know, 75 for, um, for you know, building leases means that now people have to measure whether they're Energy Star 75. And so people are like, all right, I guess we should get the measurement done. And so there's a lot of tailwinds around measurement. But ultimately, when you look at like folks like the state of New York or other places where, you know, the state of New York is mandating sort of three to four percent increases in energy um, efficiency uh, from buildings every single year. Um, you know, I don't know that they see this this trend with the data and then how that exactly works into the policy such that they achieve their goal. 
Well, I mean, I, we work very closely with New York. We actually have an employee that works out of the New York mayor's office. Uh, I can tell you that they believe that this is foundational to their energy efficiency plans, to meeting the mayor's goals, the, his um, goal of reducing carbon emissions by 80% by 2050, uh, and his shorter-term goals as well. Uh, and, you know, they don't mandate that privately owned buildings have to improve their efficiency every year. They have... Uh, what I would consider the best suite of laws addressing the root causes of wasted energy, which include the benchmarking and transparency law and audit and retro commissioning requirement, a sub-metering requirement for large tenants, uh, and a requirement to bring your lighting up to uh, current code uh, over a long period of time. Uh, those are all very good requirements, but they're not None of them is individually requiring that the building has to improve by three to four percent per year. They have requirements of their own government buildings. So, so draw the line for me then. So how do we how do we take all this data that we're collecting, which I submit is valuable, and I submit the fact that sensors and things are much cheaper today, so it's easier to submeter, it's easier to do all this stuff. But draw the line for me as someone who's an elected official. Let's say, how do I get from getting all this data? to actually achieving some sort of goal around climate change or around emissions reductions or around energy efficiency usage? Well, I, I think there's two elements. One is that by giving the market data, the market will act in and of itself. Uh, you'll address this terrible situation we had where no one knew how efficient a building was. They didn't realize they could get savings from their own building. Tenants didn't realize that they could shop around uh, and get themselves a better deal by moving into a building where they'll pay less utilities. But also, the city in New York's case, New York is proactively moving to take that data and drive energy savings. So they've created the Energy and Water Retrofit Accelerator, which will take the data from their benchmarking law and also from their audit and retrocommissioning law, and they'll set up a call center. Uh, these folks will be uh, calling and emailing out to building owners, especially those owners that have poor Energy Star scores or, or have received energy audits. And they'll say, you know, we see that you've got the score. Do you realize that there's these resources already available from groups like NYSERDA, uh, the NYSEEC, uh, Ed to help make your buildings more energy efficient. You know, this is how you compare to your peers. Um, are there things that we can do to help you improve the efficiency of your building? Uh, and uh, this is modeled on the Clean Heat program, which was highly su successful, where they ran a call center calling out to building owners, asking them to uh, fix their old uh, number six heating oil uh, furnaces and boilers uh, and replace them with uh, more clean alternatives. And, and that has produced outstanding results. The new energy and water retrofit accelerator is just getting up and running, so we don't have results yet. But I, I'm hopeful that this will be a model for cities around the country. So, Cliff, uh, one thing that's intriguing to me is the notion of pay for performance, because that's, for example, how we opened up a market for energy storage was that FERC decided to create, um, you know, an ability to be paid for speed and accuracy, which energy storage was able to do for frequency regulation. So if you think about buildings and pay for performance, you would then, in theory, create a market. And I think what um, Jigger was getting at is if you've got a market, which I think you actually need to have policy to open up that market, then you would also then drive investment into that. So it's not just about saving energy for just to be a good person or because you're reducing cost, but also because you can actually spur investment. So are you seeing that with your uh, benchmarking that you're seeing increased investment? Uh, yes, we are. Um, we're seeing... Uh, 
Energy Star labeled buildings have lower vacancy rates, higher rental rates, uh, and higher um, sales prices when you control for all the factors. There have been seven studies that have looked at it, looking at different data sets over time. Uh, and that's very attractive. It's for building owners, they can get a better return on investment typically from in investing in the energy efficiency of their building than from buying a new building or investing in other aspects. And, and we are seeing that. Um, we've documented job increases that resulted uh, in New York after the passage of their uh, greener, greater buildings laws, uh, firm staffing up to provide energy services to companies. We're seeing uh, falling energy use from buildings in these uh, cities that have benchmarking and transparency laws. A recent study by Resources for the Future, found, which controlled for many factors, found a 3% drop that they attributed to the benchmarking and transparency laws in four cities where they looked at the data. Um, so we are seeing investment. I think the first thing you see typically is low and no cost improvements to building operations, turning off the lights at night and that sort of thing. But you also do see increased investment in the efficiency of the building. Catherine's question brings up this bigger one within the industry right now. And, and you're seeing this split between what I would call the old guard in the energy efficiency industry and the technology-focused new guard, in that a lot of people say that the ways that we've measured and tracked savings in the energy efficiency industry have been abysmal. And very often, we actually don't know how much we're saving, um, either when it comes to utility programs or commercial, you know, residential programs or commercial industrial programs. Um, this pay for performance element has emerged, particularly in California, so that you measure savings at the meter, normalized energy savings at the meter. And many people think that this is an approach that is going to take hold in a lot of other states so that you're not relying on complicated mathematical models, but you're actually measuring savings at the meter. How does this tie into the data coming out of these building disclosure laws? And where do you kind of stand on this issue in terms of measurement and tracking of savings? Do you think that this has been a problem in the past and that the industry is on track to start solving it? Yes, I think there has been a problem in the past with deemed savings, modeled savings um, that were not closely enough tied to actual measured savings. Uh, I think uh, we need to do a lot more in terms of gathering actual energy consumption, looking at actual savings over time, calibrating models, and moving in the direction of pay for performance. It's a complicated topic, uh, so I don't want to oversimplify, but I think that absolutely we have very good information about how built much energy buildings are using. These benchmarking and transparency laws are making that information public for the first time. Uh, it's a wealth of information, and it should be guiding all of our policy development and design, as well as uh, evaluation, monitoring, and verification of utility and other demand-side management programs. So I think that this is critically important, and we're just scratching the surface. Utilities are just now beginning to realize what a wealth of information these benchmarking and transparency laws are producing, uh, and that uh, they can use it as they target their programs, as they design their programs, and eventually as they evaluate the programs. Cliff, I, I apologize for being a bit sort of stubborn about this, but I just don't buy it. I think, I mean, when you think about the clean heat program, there was a mandate. I mean, there was an EPA sort of mandate around going from number six to number two fuel oil, in some cases, natural gas. Um, and so, sure, they've got some call center and they're doing this thing and information transparency and the market and capitalism and all that stuff. But at some point, don't we actually need a mandate? Don't we just have to say, look, you have a crappy building. You can't sell that building unless you bring it to this code. I think in order to get to the kind of 80 by 50, 2050 goals that cities like New York have, we may need to, to use a heavier hand eventually. But 
uh, we have low-hanging fruit in the form of these benchmarking and transparency laws, coordinating with uh, the utility programs, There's a, uh, providing generous finance packages, addressing the split incentives problem through green leasing, uh, working with appraisers and real estate agents to make sure that energy efficiency is fully valued. In short, changing business as usual. Uh, and um, I think it's understandable that building owners and others are saying, well, you know, let's not go to the, to the heavy hand of mandates um, if we haven't, you know, picked the low-hanging fruit yet. Uh, but by, you know, it's clear that reducing the emissions from our building stock by 80% by the kind of numbers that people are talking about to prevent catastrophic climate change, that is a big lift. And we're going to have to be very creative and we're going to have to use uh, a whole bunch of tools in our toolkit. But I think Picking the low-hanging fruit first, uh, the, the kind of things that progressive building owners support, that's absolutely uh, a path that we're very much focused on. Cliff, since you have focused mostly on, since you have had the most success with cities, um, does that speak to the way municipal utilities work with you? I, it strikes me that um, investor and utilities have been loath to give up consumer uh, billing and metered information. And I just wonder if that's why you're focused more on cities. Well, we focus on cities that have municipal utilities and cities like New York that don't have municipal energy utilities. New York has a water utility, a municipal water utility. And we found that they range the gamut. Some of the investor-owned utilities have been very good. Uh, companies like uh, ComEd in Chicago um, and more recently Pepco in Washington, D.C. provide very good whole building data access to their customers to enable them to benchmark their buildings. Uh, some uh, some municipal utilities have been pretty good. Uh, municipal utilities um, are typically smaller and, and sometimes have been later to the game, um, but obviously they tend to be much more responsive to the mayors who are, uh, and the city governments who are great leaders on this. So we have high hopes for the municipal utilities, but uh, as we uh, evaluate you know, which cities to work with, um, we are open to working with cities with munis and cities with uh, investor-owned utilities. But in either case, the utility is an important part of the solution. And if they're not part of the solution, they can be part of the problem. So, Jigger, I think your question is on the mark. Like, I agree with the sentiment there. We clearly need to layer policies on top of building disclosure laws to actually make them effective. And I think Cliff gave a good answer there. But it seems like just having these laws in place has an impact on energy consumption. And we've seen incremental improvements in energy consumption without any other policies in place. Uh, I know that one study showed that there was a 3% reduction in demand in like four different cities. In San Francisco, we've seen a nearly 8% reduction in energy use across 176 buildings over the last five years. So I've learned to be pretty skeptical of measuring efficiency over the years. Cliff, how comfortable are you with this data we're gathering so far? And if you are comfortable, what does it say about the effectiveness of this, these laws so far? So I think it's early days uh, on these laws. I think uh, there are uh, opportunities to improve data quality. So I don't treat any of this as gospel. But we know that uh, a number of, of cities have collected a lot of data. Um, even when you clean it to remove data that may be questionable, uh, you see a pretty good story, um, a story of improving efficiency from buildings, as you just outlined, um, and of these benchmarking and transparency laws being correlated with faster improvement, which suggests that uh, these laws are driving change. Again, early days, don't you can't draw any conclusions definitively, um, but uh, 
to my mind, and I spend all of my time thinking about energy efficiency in buildings, these benchmarking and transparency laws are the biggest thing that's happening in terms of driving widespread energy efficiency in the large existing uh, commercial and multifamily buildings. Uh, they're not as directly tied as a, a, a demand side management program, but they affect the entire market as opposed to a utility program which tends to uh, address a much smaller number of buildings. Uh, so I, I have great confidence that uh, these uh, laws um, are making a difference. Uh, we'll have more and more data to evaluate them over time. Uh, and we're certainly working very closely to do everything we can to make sure that they're producing very high quality data. We want data that the market will rely on as they're making their business decisions and investment decisions. Yeah, the business decisions I want to get to. So Catherine and Jigger both asked good questions about how this influences the policy environment. What should the pe people in the business community know about how to navigate these policies and how it might spur business for them? I mean, how are you reaching out to the people who are deploying the actual solutions as we get more of this data? What's relevant to them? So, I mean... I one thing that uh, we heard from a venture capitalist who invests in clean tech companies, he told his portfolio companies, you know, you should be going to these cities that have these benchmarking and transparency laws because that's where there's a real demand for actual energy savings. Uh, that they, they care about actual results and they don't care about how it gets modeled by software or whether it receives utility incentives. We work with a variety of innovative startups and, and big companies. Uh, and I think you see broad support from them. I mean, these companies typically come come in and, as part of coalitions pushing for benchmarking and transparency law adoption and implementation uh, in the cities where we work. Because they know it drives demand for their services, it, it will create jobs for them. Uh, and uh, we work with them by just sort of advising folks about where these laws are, what the laws mean, uh, what Energy Star benchmarking counts. And, and the good news is that it counts just about everything, whether it's efficiency or on-site solar, all of that gets wrapped into your score and makes your building better. Uh, and um, it's because it's so agnostic with respect to technology, it's completely results-oriented. Anybody, whether it's a behavior solution or a lighting solution or an envelope solution, anything that saves energy gets credit under the system. Uh, and so it's, I think it's... Um, it creates a, a really fertile opportunity for innovative new product ideas, maybe ideas that, that people would be skeptical of. But if they're showing results, actual energy savings in the building, they're going to find a market in these cities with benchmarking and transparency laws. What is this going to look like in the future? Are we going to look back in a few years' time or a decade's time and say, it was insane that we didn't uh, require building owners to disclose their energy data in real estate transactions? Like, do, do you think they were ever going to look back and think it was silly that this information was not public? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think this is just what all self-respecting cities, uh, ultimately states, and probably ultimately the federal government will do. It's just, this is important information, just as we wouldn't think about it, removing miles per gallon stickers from our cars and leaving uh, car buyers on their own and figuring out whether or not it's a fuel-efficient car. It's crazy the idea that you would leave building a, a purchasers or tenants on their own in trying to find energy-efficient buildings. Uh, and you can't tell from looking at a building whether or not it's energy-efficient. So these laws are, are critically important in providing a 
usable market, a market that's serving its purpose uh, and driving investment to the right place. I'd also say it's amazing, you know, cities, their most valuable asset, of course, is their people, but their second most valuable asset is their buildings. And it's amazing how little cities without benchmarking and transparency laws know about their building stock. And these laws are providing unprecedented wealth of information to guide policy, to guide investment, to guide the private sector, to find energy efficiency and, and save money. I mean, I think some of your best examples, whether it was the cafe standards, you know, and, and miles per gallon or whether it was the clean heat program, all had mandates on the back end. So my sense is that three to five years from now, what we're going to learn from this is this was laying the groundwork to be able to mandate um, uh, improvements based on these scores. Well, and I think that, for instance, building codes, it, we don't know that much about how much buildings actually use uh, energy and operations. And these laws are providing unprecedented uh, information in that regard, which will lead to better building codes and even the possibility of outcome-based codes, where building builders have the option to say, okay, uh, you know, hold me accountable for delivering actual results uh, of energy-efficient buildings and operations, rather than just basing everything on energy models. So I do think that you know, this information is going to be the foundation on which all future policies around energy efficiency will be built. Hopefully it'll just be the way we do business. I, was, I think that's what, what's going to happen. Cliff Majerzyk is the executive director of the Institute for Market Transformation. He joined us from Washington, D.C. Cliff, good to talk to you. Thanks for the conversation. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Where can people learn more about building disclosure laws? Well, we have a website, imt.org. And we also maintain another website specifically about benchmarking and transparency laws around the world called buildingrating.org. All right. Now is time to take a pause and mention our supporter, our sponsor, Huawei Technologies. Huawei is a leading global information and communications technology provider operating in 170 countries. Huawei's new product, Fusion Solar, combines cutting-edge IT technologies and power electronics to digitize your solar power plant, optimize investment, reduce maintenance costs, increase power generation, and boost your rate of return with Huawei's Fusion Solar PV solution. Learn more at Huawei.com. That's H-U-A-W-E-I.com. Huawei, building a connected world of endless possibilities. Last Friday, America closed a very contentious chapter in energy politics. After seven years of wrangling over the Keystone XL pipeline, President Obama used his executive authority to kill the project. Keystone XL, if you'll remember, was proposed by TransCanada in 2008. It was designed to carry around 700,000 barrels of tar sands crude per day from Alberta to refineries in the Gulf Coast. Aside from a few local groups of First Nations opposed to the project, very few outside the oil and gas industry were paying attention to Keystone XL in the beginning. But in 2011, Bill McKibben and a few other leaders in the U.S. environmental movement caught on to the local opposition in Canada and in the Midwest and began playing up the climate consequences of the pipeline. Thus began a political battle that pitted the environmental base against the Obama administration administration, Republicans against the Obama administration, and Canada against the U.S. Catherine, most saw this as a done deal around 2011, but pressured by activists, President Obama almost completely reversed his position on the pipeline, or he did completely reverse his position on the pipeline. Given that shift, were you surprised the pipeline was killed? I think there was still a lot of speculation about what the president would do. He had changed his tone over the years, but uh, just curious if you were surprised by this final decision or if you saw it coming. 
Well, I guess it has been a, a, a slow coming, so I wasn't completely surprised the day it was announced, but no one thought this would be possible, as as you said. And I think when 350.org, um, Bill McGibbon, McGibbon and Sierra Club started working on this, they really thought this was going to be a heavy lift, especially the way Secretary Clinton was positioning. She was just going to go ahead and approve it. But now you have sort of a confluence of John Kerry, the Secretary of State, who is really, really bullish on climate. KXL is inconsistent with his values. And he said when when the determination was made, he said this would undermine the ability to continue leadership in the world on combating climate change. Um, and I think he was really a leader in changing this. Obama, of course, wants climate to be a legacy issue for him. So, you know, Kerry gave him those reasons. And then honestly, I think Prime Minister Trudeau um, now has cover because Stephen Harper, of course, made this a Canada versus U.S. Um, issue. Whereas Trudeau, while he said, yeah, we really want to do it, now he has cover not to worry about it. Yeah, I don't think Stephen Harper's position was going to determine what the president decided, but I think it was an influential factor. And when Trudeau took over as prime minister, that probably had a little bit of an impact on President Obama's decision. It, It was, I mean, I really thought the president was going to approve this a few years ago. I at least thought he wanted to. I still think that he wanted to approve it, but over time he realized that it wasn't a politically good decision to make. He had some really good reasons. If you read the transcript or if you saw the speech of why it we don't have to do it, which is that it doesn't create that many jobs. Um, and that was a big issue for him to overcome because of the union pushback um, and the unions wanting to approve it. Um, but an infrastructure bill, he said, would be would create far more jobs. It's not going to lower gas prices and it's not going to increase American energy security. Those things are happening without KXL. So he kind of laid out all of these reasons that any argument you have for me about why I should approve it is now null. Yeah, I think that was a hint. In his State of the Union, didn't he say that he'd rather roll out an infrastructure bill and create many times more jobs than Keystone XL? Am I, re- am I right in recalling yeah, that? Yeah, he did. He did do that. But, you know, I think, guys, like, I think we're being a little bit too um, specific about those things. You know, look, I think that there is a real reason to approve Keystone, right? The bottom line is, is that the only refineries in the world that can really process that crude effectively are in Louisiana. And now they're going to go to places that are going to be dirtier in nature. We have trains that are exploding, all sorts of other things. I mean, I think the reason why it was an important fight, though, is that, as you guys said, President Obama and Secretary Clinton were absolutely all of the above people. They did not believe in a in standing our ground around climate change. And even if their rhetoric said that climate change was a big deal, they weren't willing to make the tough decisions. What Bill McKibben and others did was force them to make the tough decisions. They put them in a box and said, you will stay in that box until you get you know, either faint from exhaustion or you actually come out with the right answer. And both of them have absolutely changed their positions in radical ways because of this fight. And so this is what activism looks like. And for all of you people out there who don't know what activism looks like, you know, pay attention. Yeah, I think that was the big breakthrough is that climate change had become this really big, gnarly issue that people weren't sure exactly what they could do about. And this became the bright, shiny, shiny object. So so the Sierra Club was out there teaching soccer moms how to do permit challenges. They were empowering people, educating people and really giving them something visual to focus on. And while this isn't the one thing that's going to change climate, it became a rallying point and a way to really get people back into activism on climate. And I think that was the biggest breakthrough of this. 
and it really undermines the efforts that you know the not of efforts sorry the approaches that sort of Braithrow Institute and Third Way and all these other guys have. This notion that you're going to write some sort of white paper and save all the existing nuclear power plants is ridiculous. The, 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 the notion that you're going to write some sort of piece around how Keystone really isn't that much emissions, you should just approve it, et cetera, and suddenly President Obama is going to focus his attention on the largest you know, climate emissions in the country and really lead on it is also crazy. You know, I just think that Unfortunately, you have to box these leaders in. You have to make this politically untenable to the point where Hillary Clinton last week, in a shocking turn of events, actually agreed with 100% renewable energy by 2050. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> she's, she's really changed her tune. I, I, I mean, I think there's a place for all of it. The academics and the policy wonks need to have you know, their place here. And the activists clearly have their role to play. And mo- many people would criticize the activists for focusing on a project that really uh, doesn't have much of an impact in the broader climate picture. So I think that there's an argument to be made against their efforts. But I generally agree that this wasn't about the carbon emissions from one pipeline. This was about creating a narrative that the president couldn't walk away from and to completely switch the views and the actions of some of the most powerful people in the world. And and they succeeded in doing that. So regardless and of whether this was a win on the climate front, this was absolutely a win on the activism front. And, you know, they proved their worth in that respect. And the other reason they chose this one over other ones is that it, this was completely under his control. It's one thing to say, well, we want absolutely. you to pass you know, high speed rail or whatever else. But, you know, you need Congress for that. This was completely under his control. Many people have, going back to my point, many people have criticized the environmental movement for focusing on this one pipeline, which, of course, is uh, represents a small fraction of CO2 emissions when it comes to pipeline infrastructure and fossil fuel infrastructure around the world. So why focus on this pipeline? David Roberts, always a fantastic writer and explainer in a column over at Vox, uh, had a couple of really nice descriptions of why this campaign was so meaningful. And he said it, uh, those criticisms would be like criticizing the Montgomery bus boycott because it only affected a relative handful of blacks. The, the point of civil rights, he writes, uh, the point of civil rights campaigns was not to free blacks from discriminatory systems one at a time. It was to change the culture. I totally agree with that. And then he had one other thing that I want to read. And he writes, this is perhaps the most important thing critics miss. All the ongoing climate activist campaigns, divestment, the thin green line, fighting fossil fuel exports in the Pacific Northwest, the stranded assets push in the financial world, the whole keep it in the ground movement that's gathering steam, are ultimately aimed at the same goal. They seek to remove the social license enjoyed by fossil com- fossil fuel companies. I think he's right on the mark there. I've personally gotten burnt out by the Keystone campaign, but now that the president has denied the pipeline and we can look back at how this has evolved. This has been quite an extraordinary story. And I tended to miss that because I got so burnt out by the politicking and the same stories over and over again. So I think it's a really, really remarkable story. It's a great training ground too for activists. Um, just as the Beyond Coal campaign has enabled, um, you know, fewer coal plants to be built. In fact, significantly fewer coal plants and many, many more shut down. This this gave people something to be trained around to learn about how to become an activist, and they got a win out of it, which was astounding. You know, one of the big challenges I would say with you know the academics and all of the um, sort of talking heads that we were just talking about is that. 
at some point, these politicians, if we're going to solve climate change, really need to be aspirational. When you think about what the state of California did around solar, they had no idea whether $3 billion would actually be, you know, would be enough to make solar cost effective without subsidies, local subsidies by, you know, 2015, but they did it. And when you look at what's going on in New York and Washington State and other places, people are only doing what they can see in front of them because they don't want to fail. I think, you know, part of this is that, you know, President Obama and Hillary Clinton have this point of view because they're thinking that fossil fuels are a necessary evil, that to power our economy forward, to do all the things that we're used to doing for the last 60 years, we need these fuels. And I think what you know, the activists have said is, no, we're good at technology. We're good at stuff. We're going to figure it out. Like, you guys need to stop taking the easy way out and start actually leading. Let's not kid ourselves, though. This was the result of an activist push, but it made it easier for the president to deny the pipeline because we don't even know if the pipeline would get built given where oil prices are at. TransCanada also saw the writing on the wall and asked the president about a week before he denied the pipeline to freeze the permit. And again, you have Justin Trudeau coming in as prime minister, who I think makes it easier from a diplomatic perspective to deny the pipeline. So there's a lot going on here that influenced this decision beyond just the activist campaign. Yeah, and from a geopolitical standpoint, it's going to be much better for the administration to go into Paris having done this um, to show leadership. I think it's very important that we retain that leadership. Yeah, I think that's that's probably one of the biggest influences on this decision. The president knew that he had to go into the Paris climate talks with the strongest plan possible. And even though the pipeline is a small fraction of our carbon emissions, it's such a symbolic issue now, such a symbolic project that I think approving that pipeline before Paris would have been a big mistake and made him look bad on the diplomatic stage. The last question, I guess, is what the heck could happen next? TransCanada could refile an application, which would take years. We don't even know if they want to build the pipeline anymore, given where oil prices are. And considering they'll probably stay low at between $50 and $70 a barrel for years, we don't know that this pipeline is even worth building. Catherine, anything on the political front you think we should be watching out for? Or is this a dead and done story for a little while? I mean, we'll have to see who takes the presidency, but in the end, it's going to be an economic decision by TransCanada. So, yeah, if it takes them years and years, I don't know what I would I would imagine they're going to be looking at other options. So it wasn't a great week for TransCanada. Certainly uh, not a great week for SolarCity, just not a good time to be a public solar company in general. SolarCity is the latest to get hammered by investors. At the end of October, after releasing its third quarter results, the company lost nearly a quarter of its value in a day. The reason? It wants to become profitable by the end of 2016 and is planning to moderate growth from about 80 to 90% yearly down to 40% next year. And one might assume, I assumed, that investors would like this plan, particularly because SolarCity needs to get disciplined as the ITC step-down date approaches. But they hated it, and they dumped the stock. Meanwhile, short sellers have been targeting SolarCity. Jim Chanos, a very famous short seller who uh, once targeted Enron, called it a subprime financing company in an investor note recently. So, Jager, I understand the skepticism around SolarCity's financial engineering and its long-term business model. We've talked about that a bit on the show. But what I can't figure out is why investors reacted so negatively to the company's plan to cut costs and position itself to be profitable 
after you know the ITC steps down. Am I missing something there? No, look, I mean, I really do think that the reduction in their stock price wasn't because of the announcement around their growth. That was just the catalyst. The, the reduction in their stock price comes from the fact that Solar City basically has a negative cost of capital. Every time they announce a deal, their stock price goes up by more than the entire value of the deal. That's ludicrous and crazy, right? The total amount of profit that Solar City is making on the deal might be, let's say, 15 or 20 percent of the deal size, and that's all their stock price should go up by. So there has been this notion where Solar City says, our default rates are really low. They're lower than you know mortgage rates. They say that yeah, they say point six percent. I think right. They say that at the end of you know the twenty year uh, leases, ninety percent of people are going to renew. Really? Do you have any data to show that? I don't know. You know they talk about you know um, you know some of their other pieces around operations and maintenance, and that the fact that they're going to be able to maintain these projects um, for years to come without actually showing real data. Um, to back that up. And so normally what happens is people actually, you know, will handicap all of those cash flows and say, okay, well, then it's going to be a 12% discount rate, let's say. But Solar City, to calculate their stock price, assumes a 6% discount rate with all of their liberal assumptions. And so you're at a point where you're saying, look, if you're not even going to get this hyper growth and, you know, like, you're using all of these really aggressive assumptions to get to your current stock price. I think there's a change in the in the air. Yeah, I guess you just kind of answered my question, which is why why now? Because investors have been skeptical about the company's financial engineering for a long time. Retained value has been a hot topic for years. These assumptions that Solar City are, is making are quite new, and no one really knows quite how to value them. So you're saying that it's a combination of that skepticism and the cost-cutting measures coming together at the same time. Yeah, because there's no backup strategy, right? It's not. It's the same as Sun Edison, right? When Sun Edison made all those promises, and then their uh, yield co actually collapsed. There was nowhere for Sun Edison to go to get that money back. It wasn't like they could go to an insurance company or a bank and say, hey, we basically promised that we'd buy these guys' assets at 5% interest. Would you guys give us 5% interest money to be able to go out and buy those assets and make good on our promises? No. Once the Yield Co. wouldn't make good on those promises, nobody else would back them up. And the same thing's true with Solar City. So the thing with Solar City is that, like, is that there isn't someone else. There isn't a third, an independent third party that's willing to say, you know what? We strongly believe in all of these assumptions that you're making and that we will actually you know, step in and provide all the capital that you are suggesting at a 6% discount rate because we just believe all of your assumptions. That, that doesn't exist. I mean, all of that risk was being put onto the stock price and the stock owners because a project finance investor wouldn't take those risks. Yeah, and I, I talked to someone who's in leadership at Solar City last week who was saying, you know, we've grown from 200 to 14,000 people in something like five years. And so, you know, the 80 to 90% growth every quarter was just not sustainable. They have to see some cost reductions and get more cash flow positive. And just adjusting down to 40% seems like, you know, that was a much more reasonable step to take. And I guess Jigger investors just don't see it the same way. 
just to be clear, I think SolarCity is a great company. I think they're doing well. I don't think this means that SolarCity is going out of business or anything like that. I think that investors basically said, look, you know, we basically gave you all this benefit of the doubt. Now you're basically saying that you're going to slow down your growth in this era of Sun Edison repricing their growth and other folks have, re have, have pulled back. And we just don't see you guys as this like Uber growth stock that's going to, you know, continue to make profits. In fact, investors were saying that all that extra growth was actually coming at a loss. And so now investors are saying, okay, why don't you take four quarters and prove to me that all of your assumptions are real and then we'll come back into the stock and, and buy it back. But right now we're just, you know, going to take a breather. Yeah, and this has got to be the right time to do it because at the end of 2016, the investment tax credit goes from 30 to 10 percent. So this is this is the year to do that. Yeah, they well, have to rein right. in their their customer acquisition costs. I was blown away by this number. Their cost per watt to acquire a customer has risen from 40 cents a watt to 60 cents a watt since the third quarter of last year. That is such a remarkable number, and I think illustrates the point that many in the solar industry make, which is. It's not clear whether you see dramatic cost reductions on a national scale. Um, people don't like a lot of people in the solar industry don't think that the Solar City vertically integrated national contracting company is the way to scale solar. And you know, some of the guys with with uh, a truck and four workers are seeing a cost per watt similar to Solar City. So, a really interesting number there. And as they've expanded. Uh, really fast, their customer acquisition costs have, have risen quite significantly. No, that's exactly right. And it's certainly a point that I've made multiple times. I don't think SolarCity is a cost advantage. I, I do think, though, that, you know, one thing, just to step back for a second, you know, basically solar was a bubble. I mean, that's basically what investors were telling us this year, was that solar was overpriced and that they've now repriced everybody, including First Solar and SunPower and everybody else, um, who, by the way, because First Solar and SunPower were were repriced earlier, you know, got a bump because they beat in their stock price, right? So, but bubbles are really valuable. And so these notions that bubbles are like, you know, aberrations in the market that are, that are, are, are some sort of failure is the wrong way to look at it. It, it, what bubbles do is bring people in. There's been so much more press coverage because of the solar bubble. There's so many more investors who've done research on solar because of the of the bubble. And and there's so many more people have jobs because of the bubble. And so ultimately that bubble, you know, is popping a little bit here. But that doesn't mean the underlying fundamentals of solar are wrong. It just means that, you know, a lot of these companies like Vivint and other folks were probably, you know, some and probably paid too much for them. Um, and But at the, at the end of the day, um, the fundamentals of our industry are, are solid and a lot of people are paying attention. Yeah, it's a crazy mismatch in the market right now. Do you think SolarCity's stock has bottomed out yet? Oh, I have no idea. I, um, <laughs> you know, it, funny thing is I've been in solar since 1995 and AstroPower went public around then, right? I think 96 or 97. And I've never owned a solar stock since. So except for the Sun Edison stock that I owned during that transition, which then I promptly sold as fast as I could, um, I, I've never owned solar stocks because I don't understand why they go up or down. Let's uh, wrap up the show now and tell our listeners something they do not know. Catherine Hamilton, you get the first whack at it this week. Thanks so much. Well, I just uh, last week had the distinct pleasure of going to the Clean Energy Education and Empowerment C3E uh, Symposium up at MIT. And C3E is a is an organization that was started with the Department of Energy, Clean Energy Ministerial, um, 
to really try to bring women up through STEM, science, technology, and engineering and math. Um, There are 45 ambassadors who are sort of women in their later careers, and I'm an ambassador, as is Nancy Fund, who's been on our our show before, and a bunch of other complete rock star women. And what we do is we um, award several women who have been just absolutely extraordinary in their fields, and they're mid-career women. And we also invite younger women, they're undergrads, graduate students. It's it's really for all types of women in clean energy. And it's just an amazing event. I wanted to let you all know who these award winners were because uh, they're absolutely worth mentioning. Don Lippert, who's going to be on our show, I believe, with the Energy Accelerator in Hawaii, uh, got the Advocacy Leadership Award. Grace Overlander from Tesla got the Business Leadership Award. Danelle Hogan from STEM Azing, who does um, an Arizona public school program, did the Education Leadership Award. Erica Mackey, this is not the Erica Mackey of Grid Alternatives, but Erica Mackey of Off-Grid Electric in Tanzania made the Entrepreneurial Leadership Award. Carla Peterman, whom many of us know from the California Public Utility Commission, got the Government Leadership Award. Anya Chernoff um, from Empower Generation that... uh, uh, you know, we were all, Jigger and I were trying to help during the Nepal um, earthquake. She got the International Leadership Award. Um, Alina Zagatova from First Solar got the Law Finance Leadership Award. And Jessica Granderson from Lawrence Berkeley got the Research Leadership Award. So I wanted to give all of them a shout out because it was an amazing crew this year. And I was so proud to be part of it. That's a fantastic list of names. Congrats. Thanks for sharing. Jigger, tell us something we don't know. So the National Bureau of Economic Research just released a working paper that concluded that climate change is linked to reduced coital frequency. So in an analysis of U.S. birth rates from 1931 to 2010, they found that um, higher temperatures are leading people to have less sex. (laughs) Well, you just had a child. Yeah, how's that baby? I thought it was hilarious. And so, well, look, I mean, it may mean that like we actually have some sort of biological feed negative feedback loop that solves climate change by getting everyone to have less kids. I thought power outages uh, meant there would be baby booms. That's happened in the past. Well, well, for D.C., every time there's an Armageddon of some sorts, there's always a huge baby boom. But this is about, you know, temperatures rising and people having less libido. Well, I do know that they've modeled what humans are going to look like in the future in a much hotter planet, and they expect them to be small and hobbit-like because with warmer temperatures, species tend to get smaller. I was uh, reading an article this morning about pot growers in Oregon and Washington, and Pacific Power reported very recently that it, it saw seven major power outages since July because um, growers are, you know, just Basically, they're not installing the the proper equipment to step up and down voltages, and they're just running like an extension cord into their operations, and they've overloaded circuits on the grid and caused pretty significant outages. So the utility – I actually love this quote from the utility because I think it's a a sign of the times. This guy, uh, a spokesman with Pacific Power, said – There is no reason that it should be a stigma anymore. Grow what you want to grow under the law. It shouldn't be anyone's reasons to reason to say, "I'm." But don't but don't just run an extension cord and plug it into your kitchen. That's not a safe thing to do. So so for any of you out there that are in like Washington State or Oregon or Colorado or even here in D.C. and you're working on energy stuff, maybe consulting for marijuana growing operations is a good growth business to get into. 
Thanks to our sponsor, Huawei Technologies, for supporting this show. Thank you all for listening. We appreciate your support. You can get every back episode at SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Overcast, and any podcast app of your choice. Uh, I actually recently switched from iTunes to Overcast. I'm not a big fan of iTunes for, for iOS, so Overcast is really phenomenal. If you have the same frustrations as I do, try, try Overcast. It's really good. And no, I'm not like getting compensated to say that. You can get all of our back episodes at greentechmedia.com slash podcast, where we will have show notes and links to things related to what we discussed in the show. If you want to connect with us and send us more comments or show ideas, our email is podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Catherine, we've got our live show at the MDVCA Solar Focus Conference here in D.C. next week. That should be a good one. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I really look forward to it. It'll be fun. And we'll have uh, TJ Diora of the Solar Electric Power Association on the show. He was with us, gosh, a couple years back now when he was with IHS. He was a great guest and... um, I think he'll be a phenomenal fill-in host. Unfortunately, Jigger won't be there. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.